0: Romans 5, 12 through 21 reads like this. Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned, for sin indeed was in the world before the law was given, but sin is not counted where there is no law. Yet death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those whose sinning was not like the transgression of Adam who was a type of the one who was to come. Verse 15, But the free gift is not like the trespass. For if many died through one man's trespass, much more have the grace of God and the free gift by the grace of that one man, Jesus Christ, abounded for many. And the free gift is not like the result of that one man's sin. For the judgment following one trespass brought condemnation So, one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. For as by the one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners, so by the one man's obedience, the many will be made righteous. Now the law came in to increase the trespass, but where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. So that as sin reigned in death, grace also might reign through righteousness leading to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Romans 5 12 to 21, we'll get there in a minute. I wanted to give you the worst possible kind of advice this morning. And uh, that, what's the worst kind of advice? Unsolicited uh, advice. So, uh, so, this completely uh, has nothing to do with the message this morning. But but this is something I'm aware of. A lot of people at the beginning of the new year make a lot of New Year's resolutions, commitments, covenants, these sorts of things, lose weight, work out, uh, whatever it might be. And I know a lot of believers also use this as a a time to sort of reset around a commitment to reading uh, the Bible on a daily basis. And uh, so if you're one of those, what I wanted to do was just give you three or four tips for daily Bible reading. That's it. I'm just it's unsolicited advice. You're saying I don't need your advice, right? that's, that's why this is the worst kind of advice So I'm gonna give you uh, tips and and these tips just come from my own experience things that have helped me in uh, Seeking to want to read the Bible on a very regular basis uh, First tip is you, you should have a plan uh, don't wake up in the morning. Just crack your Bible open now have a think through what you want to do uh, How you know, set a goal? Do you want to read the whole Bible? Do you want to read the New Testament? Do You want to read particular books? Have a plan, and you can find some plans online. I'm going, to get, I'm going to let you know my favorite plan is the one-year Bible. That's my favorite plan, and the reason I like that plan is because it has a reading from the Old Testament, New Testament, Psalms, and Proverbs every day. And the reason that's helpful is there are some sections of the Bible that when you read them, you go, hmm, what am I supposed to do with that? What's, thankful about the, what's great about the one-year Bible is regardless of you read a section of the Old Testament, which is maybe 10 pages of names you can't pronounce, you go, okay, what am I going to do with that? Well, luckily, you still have a New Testament reading, okay? So you got a backup plan, so to speak. Uh, so that's why I like it. Um, but you can choose whatever plan uh, you want. What, what's a goal? If you've never read the Bible before on a regular basis, I'll give you a goal, 15 minutes a day, five days out of seven. Can you handle that? 15 minutes a day five days out of seven you knock that out for this coming year You're gonna read the Bible more than 99% of the people in the United States. Okay, so 15 minutes a day uh, Five days out of seven and that's a a pretty good uh, goal Another thing about Bible reading another tip for Bible reading is this Just read the Bible If you're doing your devotions and you read one verse and then three pages of a devotional You haven't done Bible reading yet You've done a devotional and, and keep reading your devotional. I love it. Got, there's some great devotionals out there. But what we're talking about is Bible reading, uh, 15 minutes a day of reading the Bible. And if you want to also read a devotional too, that's great too. But the power of the word of God to change life is the word of God. Uh, so uh, read devotionals. There's some great uh, devotionals out there to read, but make sure you're reading mostly Bible. Is that, is that a weird thing? Some of you are thinking I'm judging you. I'm not judging you Oswald Chambers knock it out the park go for it Have a good time his utmost your highest Woo. Read the Bible, too Okay When you're reading the Bible, you're gonna read things that are weird Strange that you don't understand make you angry uh, Make you sad make you want to send me an email uh, Or nowadays make you want to Google it. Here's what here's here's again just another tip Don't do any of those things for your Bible reading Just read it and make yourself a rule. No Googling, no grabbing a book, no sending an email. If you don't understand it, don't worry about it. Maybe you'll understand it next time you read it. But just read it. Because what happens is you read two or three verses, you start Googling, 15 minutes go by and you've spent more time reading uh, what people on Google have to say about the Bible instead of just reading the Bible. Well, why? That doesn't make sense. Here's the thing. A great mystery novel, you'll read through it and all the way through it, you don't understand anything about what's going on. Then you read the last chapter and what do you do? Oh, oh. And then sometimes if it's a really good mystery novel, you'll go back and reread it again because you wanna see it all based on what you already know is gonna happen, right? Well, we don't do that with our Bibles. We read it, we've never read the thing all the way through, we don't understand it, so we quit. You gotta read the whole thing. As it turns out, the whole thing is how the whole thing is understood. And uh, I would suggest you can understand Genesis if you haven't read Revelation. And, uh, and so just keep reading it. Just get after it. And uh, when it's time for Bible, just sit down, read for 15 minutes, and go. Okay, now some of you use a plan and you check off the day. You, who, who are the box checkers? We got some box checkers. We got other people who aren't box checkers. I like to have boxes and intentionally not check them to show them that nobody can tell me I have to check a box you got other people that if they don't check the box, they're going to hide in their closet in the fetal position for the rest of the day, okay? Here's my suggestion. If you have a reading plan you're doing on an annual basis, when you miss a day, this is my rule, I don't make up my days. I know some of you are like, how can this guy be a Christian? If I miss a day, I don't make it up. I don't end up at the end of February, and this is why most people quit. You get to the end of February, and it's going to take you three days to catch up on your plan. And so you bail on it. I don't make up my days. Because I'm doing the same plan every year, it's pretty unlikely I'm going to miss the same day next year. So I'll just catch it next year. It's still going to be there. Right? So don't make up your days. Don't put that burden, oh, I failed my plan. Knock it off. Just keep going. Keep plowing through. So uh, make it up. Okay, last thing and this is the last tip on this Uh, you might want to look at your expectations about what you want to Get out of your Bible reading. It's a very common assumption that when we're reading the Bible the goal is to be inspired for today I hope you're inspired for today Okay, that's not what it's for that there will be many many times you read the Bible and you go. I'm not inspired I'm not sure if I believe this thing anymore or I'm not inspired. I'm annoyed. I can't believe this is in my Bible The the Bible is intended to change you, and that means you may not be inspired. You may read it and go, oh, man, I thought I was okay. Turns out I'm not. So we might need to adjust uh, what we expect out of our Bible reading. Um, You don't prepare for war the day the war starts. So what you need from your Bible reading today may not be for today. It may be for next month. And that's why having a consistent, regular Bible reading plan allows God to have that, uh, the material, so to speak, to be preparing our hearts for whatever he has uh, ahead of us. Okay, so those are all my unsolicited tips for Bible reading uh, this year, and you're, uh, you're welcome. If you didn't want that advice, right, I knew that. That's why I gave it to you anyway. Okay. Let's jump back into Romans 5, 12 through 21. There's absolutely no way we're going to thoroughly cover these passages in the time allotted, but we're going to do the best we can. So we're going to be, hopefully, efficient with our words this morning. Your biggest problem. What's your biggest problem? Your biggest problem. It's very, very simple. It's the same problem. Everybody has the same problem. It's the biggest problem all of us face, and the problem is simply this. Everybody dies. That is your biggest problem you're facing in your life is 100% of the people on planet Earth die. The mortality rate of this planet is Everyone can you believe that it appears this place is a dangerous place to live? How we deal with death as a reality is born out in cultures around the world You can look at the ways different cultures approach death some Uh, expose themselves to the reality of death on a routine basis as a a way of understanding it. Some cultures have celebrations of death. They have holidays around remembering the dead and reminding each other of uh, the dead. Look at different mourning rituals and uh, um, burial rituals and memorial services and these kinds of things. And you can see different ways uh, uh, cultures handle death. Some people, the person hasn't been dead, 20 minutes and they have them in a coffin and they're taking them through the public square and people gather around Uh, Some people uh, some cultures the the burial must happen very very quickly Uh, Other cultures uh, you would keep the remains out for some period of time And interesting if you look at our own culture one of the things we I might suggest about the Western American culture is we have through our rituals of understanding death sought to push death to the farthest corners possible so that we might not be exposed to it. One thing I've noticed when I was a younger person, if you went to a funeral, the casket would be there almost 100% of the time. We would not even normally ask people when the casket, if the casket would be here, we would ask, when is it arriving so we can have the doors unlocked? And that's something that is sort of moved out. And a lot of different reasons that may have occurred. But isn't it strange? It used to be the question wasn't whether or not a casket was here. It's whether or not it was an open or closed casket service. And but now we've started, we're going to have the graveside, you know, just for a very small group of friends and family. Going to put the body away, come here. And then we have what? What do we call it now? A celebration of life service. And that's fantastic. I'm not judging that. You want to call it a celebration of life service? Fantastic. Because we should celebrate life. What else is it? Somebody died. But it, no, I've just noticed in our culture that we've just sort of tried as an, it, it put a great amount of effort to prove death over there to pretend it doesn't happen. Uh, in, in many cultures, uh, there is when somebody becomes terminally ill, there becomes a, an effort to make sure somebody is with that person 24 hours a day, seven days a week. When somebody comes terminally ill in our culture, we set up a meal train. 24 hours a day, seven days a week, the people who aren't dying are fed. But the idea of sitting with a, a dying person for many of us seems very, very strange, unless it's a spouse. But, but in many cultures, it would be, you need a break, uh, wife of husband. Uh, I'll sit with your husband to make sure he's not alone. And, and w- what we do in our culture is somebody is uh, now on hospice, We'll phone, how are they doing? They're still with, okay. And so we'll make a phone call to see if they're still uh, with us. And it's, again, none of these things, I'm not judging our culture, so to speak. It may seem like that as I'm saying it. What I want us to understand is the way our culture has approached death is to try and put it as far away. And, and we may actually get to the point where we think people don't actually die. But the Bible makes quite clear. Our biggest problem is how many people die? Everyone dies. What happens is we become numb To death, And the reality that death is coming for every single person We forget that death is normal in our world It's abnormal that we might pretend it doesn't occur And we might wonder what caused it And that's precisely what the Bible is driving at here In Romans chapter 5 Is the cause of it Verse 12 Therefore sin came into the world through one man And death through sin So death spread to all men because all sinned Adam, in the Garden of Eden, opened the door that death might enter by rebelling against God's commands. So death enters through sin. Sin ushered death in. Death is not normal. Sin or death is the result of rebellion against God, who is the God of life. So Adam opens the door to sin and uh, and death. As a result, everyone who lives lives in the, the world under sin and death. But not only that, look at how verse 12 ends. Death spread to all men because all sinned. So do we sin and die because Adam sinned or because we sinned? Yes, because Adam sinned and because we sinned. We're born into a world of sin and death. And in a world of sin and death, we also sin. And so the result is our life is forfeit because all are condemned By their own rebellion against God. Death came into humankind, not because of something God did, but because of our rebellion against him. Look at verse 13. Sin indeed was in the world before the law was given. Adam sinned before Moses brought the Ten Commandments and the law code onto Mount Sinai. And so what the Bible is telling us is sin existed before the law was there, but at the same time, doesn't it seem strange that you would have sin if there was no law? Was Adam under a law? Sure he was. What was the law? Don't eat that one tree. It seems pretty basic. Like It, it doesn't seem complicated. If, if you could choose Adam's law or the Mosaic law, which one would you choose? Well, Adam's law. Everybody knows this. Adam, this isn't complicated i've said this before just to remind you many people don't know what fruit uh, that tree was but as this men's dinner is coming up what fruit was it we've said this before it's the prime rib tree that's why he ate it he saw it was good it looked good he ate it i don't know if it was the prime rib tree that's ridiculous sorry about that So Adam had a law and the Moses had a law. And so someone might say, well, well, what about all the people between Adam and Moses where there really was no law? How could they be responsible for sin? And and an argument here is really interesting. It's actually a really, really pragmatic and practical uh, argument. Uh, He says this, sin was in the world before the law was given. Verse 14, death reigned from Adam to Moses. So the question is, well, you can't hold someone responsible for their sin because there was no law from Adam to Moses. And, and, and Paul, by the it's first year, the Holy Spirit here points out, did all the people between Adam and Moses die? What's the answer? Yeah, turns out they all did. What does that mean? Okay, you want to argue all day long that you shouldn't be responsible for your sin. That's not fixing your dying problem. So let's just be straight here you can make all kinds of theological arguments this is true this isn't true but you haven't fixed the there's going to be a celebration of life service for you one day problem and that's his argument between the two laws sin still reigned how do we know that sin reigned because the power of sin is it kills everybody sin reigns because it's deadly you can't say i didn't know any better Because the answer is, okay, are you still gonna die? Yes, then you haven't fixed anything yet. You still haven't fixed your primary problem. And not only that, you did know better. The Bible tells us that back in Romans chapter one, but we don't have time to go there. In, I think, Genesis chapter six, God looks at the world and he's a little disappointed with how things are going. He goes to Noah. Noah finds favor in God's eyes, and the reason God decides to bring the flood is because the inclination of the human heart is sin all the time, and the the world at that time was marked by violence. And so God was going to try and do a do-over. Did Noah's flood and ark fix that problem? And it didn't. Everybody kept dying. We needed a better fix. You can't kill everybody out of the sin problem. And so death is reigning, sin is reigning as a result of the power of death. Read with me verse 14. Death reigned from Adam to Moses, even those over those whose sinning was not like the transgression of Adam, who was a type or a prefigure or a symbol, so to speak, of the one who is to come. So, we, every Humankind has sinned, but nobody sinned like Adam because that tree isn't available anymore But we have all rebelled against God and death is reigning But Adam stands in as a symbol of the one who is to come what the Bible is going to call the second Adam Jesus So one man sinned, bringing condemnation on all creation And now as we get into the second half of this passage, we're going to see So what would happen? Can one man stand in and fix that problem? And the answer is yes Adam stands in as a a symbol, so to speak, that one person can stand in as a representative. And if one person can represent humankind and usher in death and sin, then another can stand in for humankind and fix the problem. So death reigned, all died, and it appears at this point, at the end of verse 14 anyway, that death is an unstoppable force. And that's everybody's biggest problem. Let me just ask one quick question before we move on to the second half. Are you resigned to death? Have you decided that's just part of the deal? Have you just decided, well, you know, I look at history. It seems like everybody has died. And it seems like everybody currently either will die or is heading that direction. If you're older now than you were earlier, you realize that things aren't getting better physically, are they? Maybe you're different than me. You say, well, I'm resigned to it. Everybody dies at some point. Or maybe instead of being resigned to it, you do what our culture does and just ignoring it. I'm just going to ignore death, pretend it doesn't exist, and live each day to its fullest. But maybe there's another option if we really believe what the Bible says. Maybe there's an option that says, you know, death actually isn't the plan. That, that death wasn't the plan and there's a way out of this problem. And that's precisely what the Bible is going to argue. That our biggest problem is death, and there is a way to uh, avoid it. The solution to to our biggest problem is Christ, and he is raised. Jesus is raised from the dead. Did you know your salvation in Christ is more than forgiveness of sins? In fact, the Bible argues elsewhere that if your salvation was only forgiveness of sins, it would be useless to you. You realize that? If, the, if your salvation doesn't fix your dying problem, your forgiveness is not useful because you will die without sin. But that's still not useful. What we actually need is to fix the dying problem. And how do we know Jesus fixed the dying problem? Jesus is raised from the dead. This is why Paul argues in 1 Corinthians that if Jesus is not raised, we are above all else to be pitied the most. So either Jesus is raised and the death problem is fixed, or Jesus is not raised. And I always ask this question, if Jesus is not raised, why would you get up early on a Sunday and come down here? Your biggest problem doesn't have to be. It is said of this when you go to buy a luxury item, say you go in to buy a brand new Bentley. My understanding is Bentleys are expensive. Is this I haven't bought one recently Um, My understanding there is expensive so you might have a salesperson say something like this famous quote uh, Okay, I want to get this Bentley Uh, How much is it and what's the response? If you have to ask how much you you can't afford it. so uh, You want the car or not because if you if you're wondering if you can afford the car The fact is you can't afford the car because the only people who buy this kind of car are people who don't care how much this car costs If you have to ask how much, you can't afford it. How much does it cost to get out of death? You can't afford it. The one who could afford it is the one who didn't need to ask, and his name is Jesus. Jesus could afford to pay the price of death, and he could afford it more than it cost. we're gonna see here. He he didn't just afford it to the cost, he could afford it so much, he didn't have to ask how much it cost, so to speak. The grace of Jesus' act to die on the cross and raise from the dead, far exceeds the power of Adam's act. So Adam and Jesus, uh, Adam prefigures Jesus, but they aren't the same, we're going to discover. Adam sinned, Jesus' act was greater, both qualitatively and quantitatively greater than Adam. Adam did something bad, Jesus did something so great, it far exceeds what Adam did. Let's see how this is. This is really really important. Stay with me. Verse 15. The free gift is not like the trespass. If many died through one man's trespass, much more have the grace of God and the free gift by the grace that one man Jesus Christ abounded for many. Christ's act is greater because it is an act of grace that brings a free gift an act of grace, meaning his actions were not merited or earned by us. His actions were motivated only by his graciousness, his mercifulness, his love for us, his his loving kindness for us. Adam's act was motivated by what? Selfishness and self-interest. Wanting to be God instead of serving God. So while Adam's Adam's act is an act of self interest resulting in sin and death. Jesus' act isn't like that. He wasn't pursuing self interest. In grace and mercy, he was pursuing our interests. So his act is qualitatively greater. It's, these aren't a one for one kind of exchange. Jesus' act is a gift for others of life, him giving his life to us. Whereas Adam's is a selfish act that brings death for all who would come after him. So Jesus' act brought a free gift by grace. Instead of Adam, his act brought about inescapable death. So Jesus' work gives us a free gift of grace, but we shouldn't say that grace is free. It was very costly, just not for us. It was a free gift to us, but it wasn't free on his part. Okay, look at verse 16. Also, the free gift is not like the result of that one man's sin. For the judgment following one trespass brought condemnation, but the free gift following many trespasses brought justification. So again, Christ's act to save is better and greater than Adam's act of sinful rebellion. Jesus brings life from his one act in spite of countless sins throughout human history. I mean, think about all the sins that have occurred up to the point of Christ's death and all the sins that have occurred after Christ's death. What, what, probably a dozen, right? No, it would be immeasurable for you and I. Jesus would know the precise amount. But there is this enormous amount of sin. And Jesus, in one act, could account for countless sins. And his free gift of one act wiping out all sins also resulted in life because of his resurrection. His one act ends the unstoppable reign of death. That's what we discover here. His free gift brings about justification, which is righteousness in Christ and eternal life uh, in Christ. So Adam's act was bad, and Adam's act was powerful. I mean, it completely shifted human history. But Jesus' act is it's better because it's an act of love and grace and it's better because in one act he can wipe out the effects and the power that death has had over humankind since the beginning verse 17 Are you still with me? I didn't write this passage. This is this passage what we'd call dense. There's a lot going on. So buckle up, here we go. We're not done yet. For if Because of one man's trespass, death reigned through that man, much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and free gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. So verse 17 is so critically important because we have to reorient biblically our view of our salvation. Is our salvation forgiveness of sin? Yes, we've described now one little part of it. But but what? it's much more than that. It's forgiveness of sin that provides eternal life. Death no longer has any power over the believer. Because of God's grace, he gives us life and righteousness. What does sin give you? Death and condemnation. Jesus gives you life that never ends and righteousness that never ends. So both sin and the work of Christ bring result, but sin, in its selfishness, brings death and condemnation, whereas Jesus' act gives us life. So it says, in fact, we get to reign in and with Christ because of what he has done. Those, uh, those who receive the abundance of grace and free gift of righteousness reign in life through one man, Jesus Christ. Who reigns in the world today? Death. Who can stop it? No one. Hasn't been stopped. If you go to the doctor and he makes you feel better, that's great. He hasn't fixed your dying problem. He's helped you delay it. He's knocked it down the road a little ways. And that's a good thing. But he hasn't fixed it. Whereas Jesus, on the other hand, comes in and he says, I will bring you forgiveness of sin through my shed blood and give you eternal life. This bothers us as Christians. Why? Because it's really, really... I would suggest, maybe easy, that's not the right word, but it's the best way I can think of it. It's easy to say, I'm forgiven. It certainly shouldn't give, make us feel good. It feels good to know God has been gracious to us. That he loves us even though we are broken and, and not home yet. And and it 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 is something we can testify to. I know I have been forgiven. But it feels a little bit weird to say, yeah, I'm gonna live forever. So when you're sharing maybe uh, your experience as Christ with, with somebody you know at work or uh, at home, my guess is most of the time we're going to go with we need to have our sins forgiven because I'm going to say it and it's going to bother you. It seems a little kooky to say people raised from the dead. It, It seems a little bit... Okay, now we're now we're getting out there. We all listen forgiveness is great. It helps you uh, be gracious to others It really helps the culture function. It helps uh, in marriages and parenting let forget and nobody's arguing against forgiveness, right? But raising the dead I, 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 You're arguing with me in your head. So try it when you when when coffee shops open Or when you're driving through Get your cup of coffee and then tell the barista the person serving you your coffee. I believe dead people raised from the dead and Just see what reaction you get Try it this way. I believe people can have their forgiveness their sins forgiven. What are they gonna say? Boy, howdy I don't Christian or not Christian. They're gonna they're gonna agree with you, right? now tell them I Think dead people come back to life Right even right now. Don't you feel a little awkward about it? That's the whole deal If Jesus is not raised, if Jesus did not fix the dying problem, we're toast. Our forgiveness doesn't help us. Don't try to tame what the Bible tells us. Don't try to make it less kooky. Because I want to live in a world where dead people don't die or dead people come back to life. That's the world I want. Why? Because that's the world God created and we messed it up. And this is what the Bible is telling us. We will reign in life that jesus fixed the sin problem More importantly, we might suggest he fixed the death problem death. No longer reigns Death no longer reigns in this world death reigns. All of human history has not stopped it In christ death. No longer reigns death is no longer in christ your problem Are you going to die? Perhaps? if you uh, if you live long enough to, and the Lord tarries any longer, I've suggested he come back. Um, he hasn't got back to me on that yet. But is dying a problem in Christ? No, because he is raised from the dead. How do we know Jesus is raised from the dead? Because there were hundreds of witnesses to his resurrection. There were hundreds of witnesses to his resurrection. It is a historical fact. He did not stay dead. It is not a myth. It is not a a fairy tale. It is not a, a good notion that gives us a reason to buy Easter eggs in April. Jesus came out the grave alive. If he didn't, I would suggest this again. Why are you getting up early on a Sunday morning? Because Jesus fixed the death problem. It doesn't rain any longer. We're gonna look at the last few verses as a way of applying some of what we talked about today. And if you're like me, your head is swimming because there's a lot going on here. So I challenge you maybe this week, read through this passage a couple of times and uh, it's dense, there's a lot in there. So maybe that'll also help kind of seal it for you. Verses 18 and 19. Therefore, as one man's trespass led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. For as by the one man's disobedience, The many were made sinners, so by one man's obedience, the many will be made righteous. Here's what we need to understand here. The way to participate in Christ's life, the Bible is quite clear, is by faith. It is by grace we are saved through faith. It is a matter of trusting and relying on what Christ did on the cross and coming out of the tomb allows us to participate in his life. We experience forgiveness of sins and eternal life by faith alone. We are made righteous in Christ. Uh, we are not merely made not sinners. I would suggest in Christ we have a higher position than Adam did. Adam, maybe, we, I, I would suggest, was innocent. He hadn't sinned. We are now elevated in position in Christ. We're not merely innocent. We are as righteous as as Christ, because Jesus can afford to give us more than we lost. So he takes us out of our sin and brings us to a position higher than we were in Adam. He was made, we are made righteous by faith in Jesus. Verse 20, the law came to increase the trespass where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. There's a deep temptation in the human heart, every single human heart, to try to behave your way out of the sin and death problem. Are you tempted to try and behave your way out of your sin and death problem? Well, I'm going to try and be better. I'm going to try and do less evil things. Or maybe you're in Christ, but you feel like he's being mean to you, so therefore you want to get him on your side, and so you're going to try to behave your way out of the problem of feeling like you're not favored. And what the Bible says is quite clear. The law comes to increase trespass. What do you need if you have sin? Do you need a law? No, that will make it worse. What fixes sin? It says right there. Where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. Are you able to out-sin grace? No, if you've sinned $1,000 worth of sin this morning, and I'm probably underestimating, you've got a $1,000,000 worth of grace. That's the way this is worded. That you, it's not that you just can't out-sin the grace problem. You, there is no way there's enough time in your life to out-sin how much grace Christ has. It's not possible. So why in the world would you try to behave your way out of a problem that grace has fully accounted for? The law will not fix your sin problem. What fixes our sin problem? Grace fixes our sin problem. Both the effects of sin, sin and death, grace also fixes the remaining effects of sin in our life. Grace is the means by which Christians overcome sin over time. You don't get saved by grace and live as a Christian by law. You get saved by grace and live as a Christian by... By grace, you're arguing with me. Well, you give Christians grace, they're just gonna keep on sinning. No, I believe grace is more powerful than that. I wouldn't undersell it. Verse 21, so as sin reigned in death, grace also might reign through righteousness. What reigns through righteousness? Grace, so why are you trying to behave your way into favor with God? You are not that impressive. If you could impress God enough to earn his favor, God is not that impressive. Now, listen, I'm not judging you. Uh, as we always say, who are we judging? Second service. Throw them under the bus. If humans, ruined by sin, could impress God, what kind of guy is that? What kind of God would he be if we could be somehow impressive? But that's not what it is. is grace reigns through righteousness leading to eternal life through Christ our Lord. Since power is death in Christ, that's not a problem for us anymore. Grace now reigns in our lives by Christ and the result is righteousness ruling in our lives. Righteousness rules in our life. Jesus gives us the power day in and day out to move toward eternal life and grace is the only way to God. Grace is the way you overcome sin, Grace is the way you're going to confront the realities of sin still remaining in your life as a Christian. Grace is the reason that you can get up in the morning and pray and trust that God hears you. Grace is the reason that you don't have to worry about getting smited. It's grace to begin with, grace in the middle, and grace to the end. That's all it is. Am I beating a dead horse here? No, because death doesn't happen anymore. Am I beating a live horse? It's terrible. Your greatest problem Everyone's dies, and your biggest problem does not have to be a problem. You don't have to die. You can live forever in Christ because Jesus is raised. And how do you get it? It's by grace alone. Trust Jesus that he would give you new life and forgiveness of sins. What does grace look like? I've mentioned it a couple of times in uh, the passage. What grace looks like in our relationship with God is favor. Favor. And we're going to move into communion now, so I just wanted to draw a connection with this uh, from an Old Testament story uh, between three guys, two brothers named Esau and Jacob, and their dad, Isaac. Isaac went to his son, his eldest son, Esau, and he said, it's time for me to give you the blessing of the oldest. Go out and hunt and get me some tasty food. Why does Isaac need Esau to bring him delicious food? Because Isaac knows how blessing works. Blessing is a a person moved in affection toward another. It, I hate to say it this way, guys. I said men in particular. It's it's an emotional move. Somebody feels something good and it, it it overwhelms them and they make a decision to bless blessing doesn't merely come from a legal Ramification blessing is "Well, wow, You're you're amazing. Here's a thousand bucks it, That's that's what it's like And so isaac tells esau to go and make him some food because when he knows when he eats it He's going to be moved to bless him And he wants that that favorable disposition towards esau to result in a great blessing towards him So what does jacob do? he steps in and steals the blessing. So Jacob goes in when his mom's urging and makes a meal, and, and he puts on a disguise because Isaac can't see really well, and he, go, and he puts on Esau's coats, and, and he puts hair on his arms because he's a little bit hair-deprived, apparently. And he, and, and he goes in and he serves it. And, and when, what it says is, Isaac catches the, the smell of Esau's clothes. And you all know what that's like. When somebody you know really well and you could smell their clothes, like, oh, I know that, I know that smell. He caught the scent of Esau's clothes and he ate the, the meal and he was moved and he poured out his blessing on Isaac. Right, who is it? On Jacob. What does this tell us? Jacob's rotten. But, but what if it tells us a little something else? What if we can show up to our father and ask for a blessing because he favors our brother? What, what if that was a thing? Is it a thing? What if we could go into the father and being in our brother, the Bible describes Christ as our brother, we go into the father and he, what does he catch in his nose? He catches the, he catches the smell of his son. And then he pours out on us, what? Favor. Favor. I don't understand knowing this is how God works. Read your Bible cover to cover. This is how God works. Start to finish. He favors those who are in his son. Why in the world would you try to earn your way to his favor? What a waste of time. And why are we so worried that he doesn't favor us? He's not trying to catch our scent. He's trying to catch the scent of his son. And if he catches the scent of his son because we're in him, what is he going to do? He is going to bless us with his favor. Namely, forgiveness of all we've ever done or ever will do and deliverance from death. Death will not reign in us because we are favored by God. Our offering... Is Christ. The meal is Christ. And that's where we come to communion. This is our, our meal we're bringing to our Father. And it's the meal we're consuming, saying, I'm in Christ, so God, I know you. Not, not please favor me. God, I know you favor me, because in Christ we are favored.